You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. But tonight, of course, we're here to celebrate Chloe Arregis and the release of her newest novel, Sea Monsters, put out from Catapult Press. Um, Chloe got her bachelor's degree at Harvard University and went on to receive a PhD from Oxford University in 19th century French poetry and magic. She is the author of three novels. Her debut, Book of Clouds, won the 2009 Prix de Premier Roman Étranger in France. In 2014, she was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship, and in 2015, she curated a, a Tate exhibit on the works of surrealist Lenore Carrington. We're here to celebrate sea monsters today, and I look forward to hearing more about this novel, your process. Of course, give her a warm welcome, please. Thank you all for coming. Um, so I suppose I'll, I'll read the opening, and then I'll um, speak a bit about the book. Imprisoned on this island, I would say, imprisoned on this island, and yet I was no prisoner, and this was no island. During the day I'd roam the shore, aimlessly, purposefully, and in search of digressions. The dogs, a hut, boulders, nude tourists, scantily clad ones, palm trees, balapas, sand-sifting umber and adrenaline. The waves upward grasp, a boat in the distance, its throat flashing in the sun. The ancient Greeks created stories out of simple juxtaposition of natural features, my father once told me, investing rocks and caves with meaning. But there in Sipolite, I did not expect any myths to be born. Sipolite. People said the, name meant be- said the name meant beach of the dead, though the reason for this was debated. Was it because of the number of visitors who met their end in the treacherous currents, or because the native Sapotex would bring their dead from afar to bury in its sands? Beach of the dead, it had an ancient ring, ancestral, commanding both dread and respect, and after hearing about the unfortunate souls who each year got caught in the riptide, I decided I would never go in beyond where I could stand. Others said Sipolite meant lugar de caracoles, place of seashells, an attractive thought since spirals are such neat arrangements of space and time, and what are beaches if not a conversation between the elements, a constant movement inward and outward. My favorite explanation, which only one person put forward, was that Sipolite was a corruption of the word sopilote, and that every night a black vulture would envelop the beach in its dark wings and feed on whatever the waves tossed up. It's easier to reconcile yourself with sunny places if you can imagine their nocturnal counterpart. Once dusk had fallen, I would head to the bar and and spend hours under its thatched universe, a large palapa on the shores of the Pacific, decked with stools, tables, and miniature palm trees. It was where all boats came to dock and refuel, syrup added to cocktails for maximum effect, and I'd imagine that everything was as artificial as the electric blue drink, that the miniature palm trees grew fake after dusk, the chlorophyll struggling and the life force gone from the green, that the wooden stools had turned to laminate. Sometimes the hanging lamps would be dimmed and the music amplified, a cue for the drunks and half-drunks to clamber onto the tables and start dancing. The shoreline ran through every face, destroying some, enhancing others, and at times when I'd had enough reminders of humanity, I would look around for the dogs, who, like everyone at the beach, came and went according to mood. A curious snout or a pair of gleaming eyes would appear on the fringes of the palapa, take in the scene, and then, most often, finding nothing of interest, retire once more into darkness. Before long, it became apparent that the bar in Cipolita was a meeting place for fabulists, and everyone seemed to concoct a tale as the night wore on. One girl, a painter with cartoon lips and squinty eyes, said her boyfriend had suffered a heart attack on his yacht and been forced to drop her off at the nearest port since his wife was about to be helicoptered in with a doctor. In more collected tones, a tall German explained to everyone that he was a representative of the German Society for Protection Against Superstition, or Deutsche Gesellschaft Schutz vor Aberglauben, He wrote the name in tiny German script on a sheet of rolling paper for us to read, and had been sent to Mexico after a stint in Italy. An actress from Zacatecas no one had heard of insisted she was so famous that a theater, 
a planet and a crater on Venus had been named after her. And you, one of them would ask, noticing how intently I listened, what brought you here? I'd run away, I told them. I'd run away from home. Are your parents evil? No, not at all. I'd run away with someone. And where was this someone? Good question. And who was this someone? An even better question. But that was only half the story. I'd also come because of the dwarves. However fantastical it now seemed, I was here with Tomas, a boy I hardly knew, in search of a troop of Ukrainian dwarves. I say boy, though he was 19 to my 17, and I say dwarves, though I'd yet to see them with my own eyes. In any case, if I stopped to think about it for more than a few seconds, the situation was almost entirely my fault. Calming thoughts were hard to come by, no calm, only numbness, as if stuck halfway through a dream, yet the realization didn't trouble me. Um, so this book, this story, because it's based loosely on an episode um, from my own adolescence, that I was actually 16, not 17, when I did run away to Sipolita with a, a boy I liked, my father came searching for me. So it's a story that went through many incarnations, and uh, for years I was searching for the right form to give it. And my first two novels are set in Europe, and only a few years ago did I feel ready to turn or return to Mexico and reimagine my adolescence and this one episode, and then create a whole new story and characters around it. Um, and uh, I thought a lot about, well, when I was writing the book about how adolescence you're creating your own imaginary. And so the poetry, the literature you read, the music you listen to, a lot of the characters you meet, everyone, everything feeds into this inner life or landscape that you're slowly shaping. And even if you move on and do completely, well, things in life that don't seem directly connected to it, in my case, they are. But um, I feel like those years and conversations and songs and poems leave their imprint. Um, it's sort of an antechamber adolescence for, to adulthood. So I wanted in this book, I wasn't so interested. The, the, the story from adolescence provided the armature, and you know, on paper, description would be teenage girl runs away to the beach with the boy she likes. But um, I was much more interested in um, creating some sort of metaphorical framework and using bringing in a few of my other obsessions and French symbolist poetry, which I started reading at the time and ended up writing, um, doing all my graduate work. Uh, first my master's in, on Baudelaire and the night, and the nocturnal, and then my, she mentioned my um, dissertation on 19th century poets and magicians. But, um, so what was the challenge, but also much more interesting was uh, to write a book that as its point of departure took this story and then um, folding in a lot of subsequent interests of mine, but always returning to um, the songs and the poems that have haunted me since that era. Um, so I guess what I'll do today is just, there are a few passages, choose a few passages and then uh, preface them or, or say a little about them afterwards. Um, I guess I can go in order. The book loops back and forth between beach and city, and I wanted to ha for it to almost have to be quite fragmentary and to follow sort of tidal rhythms, and that mirror her own oscillation because she's in the she ran away and then occasionally she thinks back on her parents and feels guilty and then she puts those thoughts to the back of her head and tries to immerse herself again in the present. So, um, and so the form is. Yeah, quite uh, fragmentary. Um, but I will... So her father's uh, uh, classics professor, and, and Baudelaire is one of the lodestars, and has been ever since, I suppose. So. Uh, one day in French class, Mr. Berg asked us... That's her favorite teacher. One day in French class, Mr. Berg asked us to choose a Baudelaire poem to analyze. As he spoke... As he spoke and wrote Baudelaire's name across the blackboard, starting straight but ending obliquely, I began to feel as though recently I'd been wandering under a distant star. That evening I leafed through Le Fleur du Mal, alighting on different poems, trying to decide which to spend time with. But once the book fell open to at Un Voyage à Citer, Voyage to Kithra, I knew my attention would remain there. How did I know? Because Citer was Kithra, it was one and the same place, 
that small legendary island off the Peloponnese that had caught the imagination of many painters and poets and, more importantly, of my father. I didn't know which I preferred, the cackle of Kithra or the sorceress sea of Citer, but in any case, both designated the alleged birthplace of Aphrodite, or at least one of her birthplaces, since the exact site, like so much in myth, was contested. In the opening verse, the poet's heart is swooping about like a bird, free and happy around the rigging, but soon that buoyant spirit gets ensnared in gloomy pessimism, and the poem ends with the macabre image of the sacrificed poet hanging from the gallows. It may start with a ship setting under cloudless blue skies, but the truth, at least in my interpretation, was that the poem's heart was a carbonized black, and Kithara, a somber rocky place where dreams got dashed against its shores. When I told him which poem I'd chosen, Mr. Berg said I'd made a good choice, and then, cryptically, asked me to bear in mind that events were the mere froth of things, and one's true interest should be the sea. The sea. Up until then, my father's only way of interesting me in the ancient world had been through shipwrecks. That was how he, he drew me in, made me feel occasionally connected to the ancient. Me, I preferred the modern, whatever it was exactly. And although I listened as diligently as I could, I tended to drift off before long. Aeschylus and Sophocles had failed, so had Lucretius. Descriptions of pillar and tree worship in Mycenaean times. The spring configuration in ancient Chinese locks. Even descriptions of the design of chariots in ancient Egypt. The poles and the axles dismantled at the funerals of pharaohs in order to negotiate the narrow corridors of tombs. Facts gleaned from conferences rather than from the books in his study. Print couldn't, come up, couldn't keep up with advancement, in his words, of historical minutiae. With my mother, conversation was open and emotional with little withheld. But with my father, there was a constant search for paths of communication that led away from ourselves. It was only after he attended a conference on corrosion studies, the long-term interaction of materials in marine environments, that he returned home and was able to reel me in. He began by telling me about a metallurgical report someone had delivered concerning a section of corroded candlestick from the gilt dragon, a 17th-century Dutch vessel that had struck a reef and gone down off the coast of Western Australia. Interesting, yet not enough to last for more than one meal. But he then moved on to something more thrilling, enlivened by much more detail. Shipwrecks fall prey to all sorts of appetites, he said. The appetite of salt water, the appetite of sea creatures, the appetite of time. In the Mediterranean, there are three main saltwater macroorganisms that share a fondness for ancient timber. The shipworm, the wood piddock, and the marine gribble. All three contribute to the stratification and contamination of the wreck. These marine borers are able to endure even the harshest conditions and can adapt to nearly every depth. Water temperature and salinity are their main gauges. Marine gribbles, more sonorously known as limnoria, tunnel into the wooden pairs with the female forging ahead. Sharp-clawed and seven-legged, they are found in most marine and brackish waters, often present in large numbers. The channels they create run parallel to the surface of the wood and tend to communicate, rendering an infested vessel even more vulnerable to corrosion. Though they roam freely, gribbles have hermit-like instincts, and they are loath to leave once they've ensconced, they're ensconced in the burrows they've created. Why move home when you have a roof and an endless supply of wood, peace, and quiet? The shipworm, meanwhile, is a bivalve mollusk without shell or gender that changes sex as it grows. Also known as the termites of the sea, shipworms are less enduring in appearance than gribbles, with long slender bodies and heads that resemble gaping mouths in service of an insatiable appetite that incessantly combs the water. Their bodies become longer as they burrow, leaving a calcareous deposit in their wake. And finally, the wood piddock. Unlike the other two, the piddock is unable to digest cellulose. It seeks out wood not for nourishment, but as protection from whatever dangers the sea may present. Its burrows are shallow and spherical. It attacks in big groups. Like the shipworm, the piddock is bisexual and similarly content to remain in its chambers once satisfactory lodgings have been found. The job of these organisms is made easier and the yielding of submerged wood therefore swifter thanks to the handiwork of two microorganisms, fungi and bacteria, who break down the tissue before the others come to dig their channels. Along with this array of wood-boring creatures and their lesser counterparts, wave action adds to the process of demolition. The movement of water, as well as the movement of the seabed as the ship, sand shifts and resettles, furthers their toll on the sunken vessel. How to ignore the tragedy of the wreck like that of a carcass in a wildlife program, 
no longer breathing yet under continued assault. Once the mortal blow is dealt, a host of scavengers moves in. But I also cheered for these aquatic hermits who had found a home. Listening to my father describe the scenario made me feel I had access to something vertiginally distant and mysterious. And of the various wrecks he mentioned, his favorite, and soon mine, was that of Antikythera, which had lain at the bottom of the ocean for 20 centuries. For 20 centuries, the ship and its contents had remained at the mercy of tides, currents, organisms, and upwellings. For 20 centuries, they lay silenced. So she's haunted by these, these processes of decay and, um, and um, ancient shipwrecks. And then, meanwhile, she's, um, even though she's not very happy at school, she goes out and is very much part of a certain kind of Mexican nightlife. And my sister and I, in the late 80s, when this is set, we'd go to a, a gay goth club called El Nueve, which was founded, I think, in 1978 by a Frenchman, and he, who envisioned night as a cultural enterprise. So there were a lot of drag queen shows and magazine launches and poetry readings. And um, we were a bit younger than the average uh, reveler. But um, there were certain nights that were very goth. And, of course, in Mexico, there's, there's skull rings in every market, and people were a lot of black anyway. So the transition between... And skulls are part of our metaphysics, so to be goth or Mexican was a very small uh, crossover. But we would go to El Nueve and, um, and meet all sorts of characters, and some of them made their way into the book. Um, and there's one whose name I've changed, but he... It's often the secondary characters who are very elusive and mysterious, whom you never know well, who decades later somehow returned and take hold and are easier to write about often than people one knows well. So this is uh, a night out um, in Mexico City and has echoes of the sea. Um, so this is an evening spent at the home of my friend Diego Deán, punk rock singer, a draftsman, an occasional shaman. A small gathering, he'd called it, which it was in size but not tenor, our festivities conducted under the gaze of his three iguanas, who blinked warily each time a new guest arrived. Diego had produced hundreds of sketches from all angles and perspectives of his companions, frontal, profile, rear. He drew their prehistoric eyes, their lazy lids, their heavy blinks. These sketches hung on the walls between the bookshelves, and it was hard to tell where his pride lay most, with the drawings or the pets. That night, the creatures had watched us from their enclosures, tall glass tanks that loomed over the furniture in the living room. Someone put on a Klaus Nomi record while a large, large spiral of white powder was prepared on the coffee table. Cards angled left and right, creating whorls so thick it looked like the ghost of an ammonite, a logarithmic spiral like the ones from last year's geometry class. Once the spiral was completed, Diego rolled a 50 peso note into a cylinder and helped himself to approximately two centimeters of powder. After inhaling, he passed the note to the guy next to him, who repeated the action before passing it on. Eventually, the rolled-up banknote reached me, its paper warm from so many fingers, and what could I do but join in the ritual? The bold hum of voices, mostly male, rose and fell around me, everyone talking and thought-walking, like cantinflas, their voices expansive, compulsive, filling every inch of air. And soon I too felt charged, charged and restive and impervious to everything, and after two lines, I rose from the sofa and marched over to one of the guana tanks and stuck in my arm. But scarcely had my fingers touched the top of the scaly head than Diego rushed over and yanked my sleeve, saying I'd clearly never experienced the dinosaur teeth or dinosaur scratch or dorsal thwack of their tails, not to mention one should never approach an iguana from above, only from the side, otherwise they think they are under attack. And furthermore, it takes years to gain an iguana's trust, he said with pride as the creature looked up at us with an indifferent eye. <laughs> Diego returned to the table, circling the spiral like a sinister jester. Someone turned up Klaus Nomi, and for a moment the living room was transformed into an opera set, and in my mind Diego Deán and Klaus Nomi became one. Diego could be Nomi without the makeup, it occurred to me. They had the same arched eyebrows and beaky nose and rosebud mouth. Then again, Nomi had recently died of AIDS in solitary conditions in New York, I remembered reading people too scared of the new disease to even visit. Dark thoughts began to wash over me, the shadow side of drugs, 
which was why I didn't venture there often, and I tried to sink into the sofa despite being too wired to properly sink, observing the dwindling spiral as every few minutes another whorl vanished, every guest part of the anti-helical operation that slowed down as we neared the center. I've been thinking about getting up and checking on the iguanas when the doorbell rang, announcing the after-hours gang. They were like astronomers. Night was never long or black enough. First there was Sera, who with his 1940s suit and ruddy cheeks and greased-back hair reminded me of a wind-up doll, and his sidekick, El Chino, who lived with his pet canary, Juan El Ciego, blind since birth, for whom he fashioned nests out of discarded shoulder pads. And El Chino's older girlfriend, Lorita, a tense woman in a purple jacket who had a habit of finishing other people's sentences. And last, El Pitufo, a coke dealer who wrote poetry. People listened to him recite his latest poems in exchange for free samples, and the more they consumed, the better his poetry sounded to their ears. He longed to be taken seriously, but when people saw him, all they could think of was fine white lines. Another spiral quickly formed on the coffee table, cast forth from a folded white envelope rather than any mystery of torsion. Echino replaced Nomi with Bauhaus, then Japan. The spiral changed shape, everyone spoke at once, and whenever someone approached the table, the others followed their movements with dilated pupils, rarely a pause between beers, words, or cigarettes. And that night, I felt deliriously detached from it all. Detached, that is, until I began to worry about the iguanas. We were keeping them up. They looked increasingly vexed. I suggested we dim the lights and turn down the music, but no one, including myself, could be bothered to tend to either. And only when an iguana nodded off, its dropping lids shutting out our species for the night, did it occur to me to check my watch, which read 10 to 3, information that jolted me back to my senses. And I said goodbye to the sleeping creatures and left the others to their white lines while El Pitufo recited his. But once home, it was impossible to drift off. A white electricity ran through me, as if my system had been rewired by an evil technician. Only then, as I tossed and turned under my wool blanket, did I think of Tomas, amazed that I'd completely forgotten about his existence for nearly five hours. But now the technician had returned those thoughts and others to their casing. So that was more or less a typical night out in Mexico City in the late 80s. Um, and then, so this, uh, my young narrator, she um, runs off to the beach with the boy, and, and in real life, it was the boy I liked to ask me, but in the book, I very much wanted the young woman to have um, more of a sense of agency, so she's the one who lures him to the beach, and as a ruse, she uh, mentions to him uh, an article she reads in the, read in the newspaper about, and it was based on an article we saw in the time, at the time, a few years earlier, I think in 85 or 86, about a troop of Ukrainian dwarves that defected from a Soviet circus. And to this day, we have no idea what happened to them. Years later, my father and I went to the, um, to the newspaper and looked through the archives. There was no follow-up. No one there even remembered the story. So <laughs> it's a complete mystery. But, um, so this is, just a small, this is just the moment when she sees the article and everything is set in motion. If I hadn't seen the article, I can say for certain, I would have never come to Oaxaca. If I hadn't happened to reach for yesterday's newspaper in the kitchen one afternoon, after shutting the windows, the trip would have never taken place. The television wasn't working, so I turned to the only reading material at hand, yesterday's copy of Excelsior, and spread it out in front of me, allowing my eyes to wander from one crumpled page to the next as I took in the headlines. These are the headlines. Continual theft in cemeteries, bones and tombstones missing. Dobermans and tanks evict gardenistas. Price of flowers rises 500%. Authorities remain indifferent. Old lady found, it, found seated in armchair, dead for days. Suitcase thief deten- detained at airport. And those are all real headlines from the time. I was halfway through my sandwich when my eyes landed on a less familiar headline. Lurking on the outskirts of these stories was a different sort of news item written in a different sort of voice. Ukrainian dwarves on the run. Twelve Ukrainian dwarves are on the run from a Soviet circus. The circus and the dwarves had been touring Mexico since early October, both inland and along the coast. And then, without any warning, they were gone. According to authorities, they vanished overnight with nothing but the costumes on their backs, green sequined suits with purple collars and magenta shoes. After their performance in Jalapa, Veracruz, which, according to members of the audience, had been carried out with great poison assurance, The troop had returned to the rusty trailer in which they all slept. 
absenting themselves from dinner despite their notorious appetites. And in the morning, when the German sword swallower knocked on their door, puzzled that not one of them had shown his face at breakfast or gone to help strike the tent, he was met with silence and, upon tentatively letting himself in, an empty trailer in disarray. After months of maltreatment at the hands of the ringmaster, the sword swallower surmised, the dwarves had had enough. And so they took flight with nothing but their costumes. No money, no passports, no language apart from their own, no letter or official seal to facilitate their passage. It was assumed by fellow performers, however, that they were on their way to the coast of Oaxaca. Anyway, so that sets everything in motion, and she keeps returning to that story and finally tells the Tomas, let's go look for them. Um, and then I thought I'd read a passage. So I, I've worked uh, a bit on... Leonora Carrington uh, spent the last six, seven decades of her life in Mexico City and was a family friend, and so I ended up later writing about her work and guest curating an exhibition of hers. Um, and a few years after she died, my father and I returned to La Roma, where she lived, on the street of Chihuahua, because she had a little yellow, uh, sorry, white Maltese named Yeti, who had been a present from her dentist, and was this little dog accompanied her during the last years of her life. So after Leonora died, it was always the question of what happened to Yeti. So we rang the bell, and her housekeeper Yolanda answered and said Yeti was being looked after. And then my father said, "Oh wait, he'd just been reading about uh, William Burroughs, and he thought, oh." Right around the corner at Monterrey number, I think, 122, is where Burroughs shot his wife famously. So why don't we just go and, and ring the bell and see what happens? And so our experience there was so bizarre that I put it in my book. <laughs> and it's so basically, what, even though it's the young narrator and, and this character, Tomas, she's interested in, but, um, but their experience is very much what ours was when we went. So. Uh, so he works at a bookstore, and um, so my, my character, Luisa, goes to look for him at the bookstore. Uh, the first three sightings of Tomas were followed by none. So one afternoon when I was feeling fortified, I dropped by A Través del Espejo, that's the bookstore. As much as I liked the idea of it, I didn't go there often. The place was topsy-turvy, with erratically packed shelves and signs in different languages and piles of books rising from the floor to the height of children. Positioned at the till as if to contradict its chaos was the owner, a stern woman with a page boy haircut. She never smiled, never helped, and expressed annoyance whenever someone inquired into the availability or location of this or that book. I crossed paths with Tomas, nearly brushed sleeves, as I walked in. He was on his way out, accompanied by a couple around his age whom he had introduced as the Americans. He was taking them to see an apartment, he said. Which apartment? I asked, wondering whether he was now working in real estate, too. The apartment where William Burroughs shot his wife, he said. These Americans had come into the shop, into the bookshop, asking whether someone would show them, could pay 50 pesos, and since Tomas had been there once before, he volunteered and got a permission for a short break. Do you even know who Burroughs is, he asked me. Yes, yes I do, I said, though I'd never read him. My mother had two books of his, and every now and then, sensing they held something illicit, I'd peer inside, searching for incendiary words and scenes. Moments later, I was walking down the street with Tomas and the two Americans, the girl chubby and snub-nosed and exuding an impressive confidence, the boy somewhat timid in half her girth. Tomas led us to the corner where Chihuahua meets Monterrey, paused, then turned right on Monterrey and stopped in front of number 122, a gray building with a black door. It opened with a push. We entered the tiled hallway and climbed a chilly flight of stairs, but at the first floor, our steps were cut short by a floor-to-ceiling grate that blocked access to a whole section of the corridor. A woman in a tracksuit and flip-flops emerged from one of the apartments and asked what we wanted. Would like to see... No, 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 the woman interrupted, aware where the sentence was heading. Number eight was a private residence. After moving in, she and her husband had put up this barrier because people kept coming by, wanting to make a television series, documentary, photo shoot. The young woman, the young couple pleaded... They said they were students from San Francisco who, live, who loved William Burroughs and wanted to see the place where it all happened, the place that made him a writer, the place that made him a different person from when he entered. The woman seemed moved. I could see her studying the eager couple, their converse high tops and woven bracelets from the market. And after biting her lip and glancing over at me and Tomas to make sure we weren't renegades, she finally said, okay, five minutes, and unlocked the gate. As far as I could tell, her home contained nothing foreboding, apart from the walls being decked in Christmas decorations, with pots of poinsettia on the sills. 
It was unclear whether these were left over from the previous year or put out a few months early. The windows of the apartment looked onto an interior courtyard whose upper tiers were crisscrossed with laundry. The woman's husband surfaced from a side room. His jeans were fastened with a string and he spoke and moved in stutters as if he'd suffered a stroke. His wife told him why we were there, upon which he sighed, especially when the young Americans asked where they, whether they knew where in the flat it had all happened. There seemed to be many spaces and they wanted to know which held meaning. The woman pointed to a piano in the living room, an old piano covered in doilies, nearly 80 years old, she said. No one had ever played it, but in its spot, the lady was shot. With forensic hunger, the American boy began to circle the piano as if the instrument had absorbed some of the drama from 37 years before and started taking photos from different angles, his camera clicking loudly each time he pressed down on the button and wound the film. As he took pictures, the woman positioned herself in front of the piano and her husband stuttered over to the arch, dividing living room from dining room, and solemnly announced that here was where Burroughs himself had stood, under the arch, and taken aim. Husband at one end, wife at the other, face to face. All movement halted as they set up the scene. Despite their earlier protestations, I had had the sense they had done this before, inviting friends over to pantomime the famous incident that had taken place under their roof. The seconds passed, taut and bizarre, as each of them stood in their places. I sensed I was being watched. Tomas was staring over at me, his lips curled and eyes slightly narrowed. I wasn't certain how to meet the expression, so I smiled, but since his lips were already curled, I couldn't tell whether he was smiling back. Well, he must be, I decided. Perhaps he was thinking what I'd begun to think, that this was a space of couples, first Burroughs and Joan Vomar, then the married pair who lived there, and the young Californians, and now Tomas and Luisa. Three couples, albeit one deceased, and us. Different portraits of modern coupledom. Story of an afternoon with piano and couples. Tomas returned his attention to the husband and, his, and wife, who continued with their pantomiming as, as the rest of us stood quietly in our places. After a minute or so, the American girl, now pale, brought the session to an end. Well, thank you. I think we've seen enough, she said softly, her hand tightening around her bag strap. It'd been too much, I sensed. She'd gotten more than she'd expected. Thank you, we echoed. The man waved from under the arch, but his legs stayed rooted, unfreed from the spell. His wife accompanied us to the gate. On our way out, I noticed it was the rest of the building, rather than the apartment itself, which seemed to hold something of that unfortunate past. The hollowed steps, the cold blue shadows of the stairwell. I was eager to return to the street, but Tomas insisted we have a quick look at the patio at the back, an outdoor space enclosed by four high walls, home to a Calorex boiler and a black door lying horizontal. It wasn't the original from 1951, but one of many reincarnations, Tomas explained. The past 10 doors had been documented over the years by a fan. Up above, I glimpsed a patch of blue beyond the hanging laundry and walls of blistered plaster, beyond the pleated curtains flapping in the windows like women's nightgowns pressed against the sills, restless and billowing and ready to leap out into this domestic void of the inner courtyard. In silence, we headed back toward the street, through the corridor where light bled around the rim of the front door and pulled into long white bars on the floor tiles. And it was there in these communal spaces that one felt captive to the building. But anyway, Mexico is full. Mexico City is full of these places, and also imprints of emigres who um, spent time there and well, had quite dramatic experiences. Um, I don't. Shall I read one more? I don't know. Or ask questions? Or? I haven't read anything from the beach yet. Maybe I'll read just something from the. So anyway, so. Um, during adolescence, it's, you know, desire is very mobile and it's constantly attaching itself to new subjects. It, um, and there's a redrafting of fantasy constantly. So once Luisa's at the beach with Tomas, um, she, her interest moves on to someone else, someone very mysterious who she thinks might be Eastern European. Um, so this final scene is at the beach. Night doesn't fall it rises, and, and twilight in Cipolite, which is the beach we went, night doesn't rise, it, sorry, night doesn't fall, it rises, and twilight in Cipolite was marked by surge in activity. Some sought the bar, others the bonfire. Tomás liked the bonfire, its mellow tenor and roving guitar. For that reason and various others, I gravitated, gravitated towards the bar. After so many hours on the beach, I welcomed a change in location, and furthermore, the flames reminded me of the fire eaters at traffic lights in the city. Um, these men would gulp down diesel and, off, and once 
fueled up, tilt back their heads, raise the lit torch to their mouths and roar out long, trembling flames, then stumble over mutely to the car window and hold out a hand for coins. I was reminded of them each time I saw a bonfire, even when in the company of friendly Europeans, such as a Spanish merchant from Valencia, who, when I told him about the dwarves, said his brothers were clowns who had a double act, Bolilla and Alganfor, moth and mothball. Yet in the city, even when stopped at a traffic light, my thoughts would remain on green, and it was only in front of the fire, thrown into contemplative mode, that I'd think back of these, think of these silent men, the flames like speech bubbles, their only language. Once the air cooled and the sun cast new glimmer, sorry, once the air cooled and the sun cast new patterns of glimmer on the water, I would head to the bar. I'd slip on my short dress or wraparound skirt and amble down the beach, past the bohemian glow of the bonfires, towards the light and music. And it was at the bar one night, just as I was two-thirds through my second drink and debating what next, that I met the merman. It didn't take long for me to notice him in a corner, a ring of silence around him, his sharp Slavic features bringing a new geometry to the scene, and slanted eyes, almost reptilian, that drank in but didn't give out. His clothes seemed from elsewhere, snug black trousers of thin polyester that rode high at the waist, and a white tank top, and, even more oddly, a green cardigan worn open. The temperature dropped a few degrees at night, but never enough to warrant a sweater, topped off by navy blue plastic sandals with one thick band across the top. I'd seen him earlier that, earlier that day and witnessed something intimate enough that when I spotted him at the bar that night, I felt I knew him just a little, although he clearly hadn't noticed me. So absorbed was he in his thoughts, so withdrawn from the general mood of the beach. All I could do was throw myself into his line of vision. After a slightly awkward approach, I sat down, introduced myself, and asked his name, a question to which he simply smiled without providing an answer, clutching his bottle of beer and breathing calmly, evenly, at a different rhythm somehow from the rhythms around him. Each time he drank, he'd wipe his mouth with the back of his hand and make a low guttural sound, and each time he did this, I felt a sharp rise in desire. And after two or three minutes, possibly less, I knew I'd found the person I wanted to be with, or at least the person to whom I could tell my story, here in Cipolite. My eyes had initially been drawn that afternoon to his bathing trunks, high waist, mid-thigh, green with a blue stripe down the side, which stood out from the other beachwear. I could tell the man was had a handsome foreign face, at least through my sunglasses, at least from a distance. He was significantly older than me, in his mid to late thirties, or even early forties, and had light brown hair, longish at the front and short at the back, and a bit of a belly. Yet what interested me more than his pleasing appearance was that the man was building a sandcastle. Without drawing attention to myself, I sat down about a meter and a half away, near a row of people spread out on towels, and from behind my sunglasses, I began to observe the various stages that went into the construction. Armed with a flat knife, bucket, and shovel, the man seemed oblivious to everyone on the beach. Like a child in its sandbox, he kept his focus within the parameters of his kingdom. And as he dug deep, setting the foundations and piled high, hand stacking the great mound of wet sand, I couldn't help but feel that by the mere act of watching, I was intruding on a childhood fear of fantasy, there in, de there in the design, as if one could read a person's past and future, homes real and imagined, in the way someone built their sandcastle. Despite these thoughts, or because of them, I found it impossible to avert my eyes. After laying the foundations, he smoothed out the surfaces with his knife, then packed and shaped, carved and smoothed some more, moistening at intervals. Which, with large, gentle hands, he then built a tower and an arch, maintaining the knife at the same angle while cutting, always working, I noticed, from the highest point downward. And then came a bridge and sta stairs spiraling around the tower and various doors and windows, some with ledges. Columns came next, creating wonderful shadows, and finally the roof with inverted cone shapes like those in fairy tales. And the more the man worked on his sandcastle, the more sophisticated its architecture, the more I sensed the presence of the waves. Rows of muscular men with interlocking arms that came closer in with each roll as if they wanted his castle. Every now and then the man would step away from his creation, presumably for a more panoramic view of the work in progress. And only at these moments would my eyes be drawn away from the castle to him, standing tall and casting a shadow. And from where I was sitting, I could admire both the handsome profile of the man and the handsome profile of the castle against the horizon, its tones, its tones starting to deepen as people began their migration from beach to bar or hotel. Soon the structure was complete, just in time for the setting sun to lend it a preternatural glow. And the man brushed the sand off his legs and circled his creation. I could almost read his pride from afar as he studied it from every angle, occasionally leaning into just one last detail. But then, I would never forget the sound of a sandcastle collapsing, 
the whoosh and the cry as the fine engineering work was erased within seconds. For only minutes after finishing, he tripped over his shovel and fell into the castle, not into its center, but into its right side, enough to topple the foundation. The towers went first, then the ramparts. The sculpted arch crumbled back into grains of sand. With an air of defeat, the man gave the bucket a kick, still unaware he was being observed, and trudged off, heels heavy in sand. It wasn't long after that the tide came in to finish the job, and soon there was no trace whatsoever of either man or castle. Because this book is basically about disenchantment, so and the collapse of fantasy, so there's... Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, um, Does anybody have questions? Um, can you talk a little bit about the difference between writing in English and in Spanish and your choices? Why? Well, well, I, I was raised bilingual since my father's Mexican, my mother's American, but I decided early on, because my, my father's a writer and Spanish is so much his kingdom, that the only way I could really go about it was English, yeah. But I do feel, and I lived in Germany for several years and then did all my graduate studies in French literature, so I do feel like foreign languages, they feed into your work in mysterious ways, into your own language, um, and sometimes even mishearing something gives you an idea. Um, so I, very, I live and write in English, but the input is always... Uh, multilingual. I'm curious about the imagery of sort of spirals mm. and how they connect to these broader themes of um, decay and disillusionment within, mm. and also entrapment being, you know, she, the very first line, opening line of the novel, right, being, I, I'm trapped on this yeah. island. That's, um, yeah, those, that opening line of saying, yeah, I'm prisoner on this island, I'm not, that's saying, this is the tempest, it's not the tempest. Mm-hmm. But it's a reference to because the tempest is, you know, well, it's Shakespeare's swan song, and it's about disenchantment. But it's very much the father's, his magic losing its hold over the daughter, and and when she chooses someone, this young man. Um, and at home they have an aquarium, so it's also that sense of which is a very fragile ecosystem, and everything has to be in balance. And so, but yeah, the spirals, I guess, also mirror that. Uh, that sway between um, her own states and desires. And, and then the book, I, the form I gave it, I like to think that it sort of spirals in and out of itself. And, um, and that's only a very late, late stage, I think, um, when one is writing, that you realize that uh, less consciously you've been, that the structure of a work when it, it all works and is in its right place, that it's actually all the elements are in conversation with one another in a way that you you weren't even entirely aware of at the time. Uh, that's when you know it's ready. Um, and my working title for the book was the Antikythera Mechanism, which my editor said <laughs> you can't have. You know, it's bad enough people can't pronounce your last name, but if you have a title, no one can pronounce, and everyone says, "What is that?" and but it's again that it was the, um, perhaps some of you know about it, but it's considered the, or it is the most sophisticated feat of ancient technology or engineering. And it was found in the Antikythera shipwreck. And then it was for 20 centuries. And it was kept more, it's in fragments, four main fragments and many smaller ones. But the pressure of the water kept it more or less intact. And, um, but I just, um, so that was meant to be in the book a sort of metaphor for romantic disenchantment, the different mechanisms that are offset and um, shipwrecks being um, sort of decompression of history but also one's own personal history sort of compressed into certain episodes that sort of spring open again. Um, and then uh, searching for another, t- for a title that was somehow you know, um, friendly or maybe it was um, I've always loved sea monsters on ancient maps, and and they seem like sort of disruptions in a map, and just a reminder that no matter what you're mapping, there'd always be something that's unknowable and mysterious, and uh, and and of course, in adolescence, you're often chasing very chimerical people or notions. Um, and kind of reaching into yourself and thinking about your 
um, yourself at that age and your own disillusionments and, and stuff like that. Is there, um, did you find anything about yourself that you feel like um, um, was almost the opposite, like an illusionment that kind of kept its charm? Um, and uh, the charm of adolescence or something like that? I think the, the music I listened to a lot, which I allude to briefly in them, but um, I recently wrote an essay for Granta called The Tension of Transience, and it was about being in Mexico City and listening to a certain kind of music and this golf club we used to go to and thinking how, uh, and, the, and what the lure was, and why I listened to that sort of music and not other kinds. And it had a certain theatricality or theater to it, golf, and then everyone getting very dressed up. But also, there's something very Baroque about it and the syncretism between pre-Hispanic and European cultures and subcultures. And um, Klaus Nomi, whom I mentioned in the book, was trained as an opera singer, and a German, and then he sang, uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with his work, but, um, and well, Susie and the Banshees, the more f- Nick Cave, the more familiar um, singers, but um, with a certain tension of the fugitive, a sense of the fugitive that I guess one continues trying to conjure up in some way, and uh, but um, and there's one line in the book that I realize uh, <laughs> could be the description of even my academic work which is that the, in a way it was it drew those of us who preferred um, European moonlight to the Mexican sun and I, I still realize that that's what <laughs> I'm somehow more drawn to um. any final <laughs> thoughts from yourself about Hmm. Any crazy takeaway? Hmm. I mean, there's uh, another. There's there's also uh, next door to where my character lives. There's an on, a construction site, which is ongoing, and the father becomes obsessed with it. And again, it's that self under construction. And then at the end, when she returns to the beach, the house is more or less finished. But. Um, but the lure is also just what's under construction, and that's the. And I mentioned um, well the shipwrecks, but also it takes place three years after the earthquake from 1985, which raised the city and certain landmarks and everything. The whole Mexico City's topography just changed from one day to the next, but from a rearrangement of features, you know, you notice new things or you know, new meanings are born. But um, but the other day I was asked, you know, people keep. Recently, I, um, someone called it a symbolist, you know, an odd symbolist novel. <laughs> and I was very happy. I'd never, if I'd set out to write a symbolist novel, then I wouldn't, I would have failed, I'm sure. You know, it's not something you can set out and intentionally create. But I was so happy. With, and I just thought about it. And I thought, actually, and it made me realize that, that those poets I read, my father, when I was, before running off to the beach, I was very shy and bookish and obedient. And I usually stay home especially my early, early adolescence before my sister and I began going out and reading Helderlin and Ovalis and um, Baudelaire and Nerval and, and, and I see now that the way I go about every book is I have a handful of themes I want to explore and the challenge is just, yeah, what I said earlier I think is creating this metaphorical framework where yeah, they all uh, converse in some way so so well, just returning to the first uh, remark I made, probably was just that. Just it's been very in- interesting for me, especially writing the book, but also just in the conversations I've had since it came out, seeing how adolescence, what an imprint has left, even more than I'd realized. And even though I've been living abroad, I left Mexico when I was seventeen, came to study in the United States and then England and Berlin, but um, I keep returning to the same themes and aesthetics, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, was, I was thinking about that in the spiral writing yeah. it's, it's a symbol of growth in some ways but also mm. of compression and hardening in the center and so yeah. that, you know, relating to this sort of feeling of entrapment but also like the solidification um, of the self in the yeah. center and how um, frightening that can feel in and of itself of course as, as a young person Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Seeing, you know, the fantasies of escape or true freedom, or you know, then spiraling back to 
Uh, but then at the end of the day, I still am who I am, and there are still these confines of the world yeah. and reality and existence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And with seash- with shells, with the spiral ones, that's. Um, but um, those wonderful. I was very inspired by Paul Valéry's essay on shells, and you know how half of it is always in darkness and hidden and unknown. And again, it's um, like the hermit, and then the other the presentation, the the very aesthetic outward presentation of the outside. I have one more question. I'm struck by um, you referred to giving Louisa agency compared to what you were remembering. Um, and I'm thinking back to that time period in the 80s and how um, coming out of a, the 70s and how um, the 80s really are a tug of war of women finding their own agency and decision. Do you feel like the 80s in that time period plays its own character? Could the story have been written in a different decade? Or is that very much a present? I think, well, another thing I thought of was, of course, is before the internet, so people weren't trackable. So someone runs away, they don't have a phone. Um, But also, well, when I got to college, um, I was was so impressed by the American girls my age, and they just seemed so self-possessed and confident. And I thought, uh, I was very aware that I'd grown up somewhere else. um, So I was very shy, and I I wasn't as strong-willed. Well, I was in other ways, but more inhibited than my character. But, yeah, I don't think it could have been set, um, at least not in Mexico. I mean, sorry, in the, yeah, in another decade. Because um, like the 90s, I think it opened up much more, and then um, there were many more sort of feminist movements. Or there was much more discourse. And then with internet, that changed everything. Thank you. Thank you for coming. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com slash events.